This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is In the Workplace on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here are Professor Peter Capelli and Dan O'Mara. Hey, folks, welcome back. You're in the workplace. I'm Peter Capelli. I'm Dan O'Hara. I'm a professor of management here at the Wharton School. And I'm adjunct faculty here at the Wharton School and a partner at Ogletree Deacons in Philadelphia. So we're going to start out by talking about analytics in the workplace. It's a pleasure to have back with us Dan Shapiro, who's the vice president of Talent Solutions Careers and Learning at LinkedIn. Dan, welcome back. How are you? Great to be here. We're great, Dan. Uh, tell me, first of all, how'd you get such a long title? Did you have to bump off other people at LinkedIn and take over their territory? Was it vicious infighting, or what happened there? <laughs> no, it's, it's a wonderful role. Uh, you know, I've always been passionate about how people find their full potential at work and getting a chance to help you know companies recruit people, help people find their dream jobs, mm-hmm. and then helping everyone find new skills to make them better. It's just, it's just a wonderful space to operate. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess part of this title reflects the fact that for you folks, these things are integrated. Talent solutions on the employer side, careers on the employee side, right? So there's a logic to yeah, the title. Yeah, exactly right. I mean, to some extent, it's a marketplace. You know, how mm-hmm. is it's not about companies finding people or people finding jobs. It's really about how the world comes together to, to find the right paths for individuals and organizations. And, and also, you know, it reflects the idea that companies are increasingly thinking about uh, skills as a multifaceted challenge. You know, we find that uh, a recent PwC survey suggests that 77% of CEOs said their biggest threat in their business is lack of availability of key skills. And, you know, there are many ways to, to approach that from a hiring perspective, from a learning and development perspective. So we try to look at the whole thing as a single problem. Mm-hmm. And I hear you have a new uh, report out. And just to uh, to suck up, I quoted your last one extensively in something uh, that I wrote for The Wall Street Journal, which will be out on October 27th, uh, in case anybody wants to mark that on their calendar <laughs> about hiring. So what's the new one about? Yeah, we have a report um, called The Rise of Analytics in HR, and one of the beautiful things about LinkedIn when we want to talk about a trend is we, we have access to so much information about how new organizational trends, new roles, new skills are permeating through the global workforce. And what we've found is that there's a, uh, a fundamental uh, increase in the amount of and analytical talent that's being um, deployed in HR. Hmm. Uh, if, if you think back maybe 10 years ago in HR, there was a huge trend for companies that were realizing the talent brand mattered. You know, recruiting organizations started hiring marketers, really investing in brand skills because they wanted to convince the world that they were a great place to work. Uh, and the same exact kind of trend is happening in analytics. And you know, one of the things that we track is how often people put certain kinds of skills on their profiles. And we found that over hmm. the last few years alone, the amount that people are putting analytics in their skills as HR professionals has tripled, mm-hmm. which is really amazing to see. Um, and I think it reflects just how much how much velocity there is going on in this trend. Yeah. And any statistician who is smart has changed their title to analytics. Uh, exactly. Because, <laughs> because literally they are paid a lot more. People who do data analytics are paid a lot more than people who do statistics. And they each can do each other's work, mm-hmm. more or less. So it's, uh, it is an interesting thing. Uh, so, Dan, I should say, both to Dan S. and Dan, Dan O. here, uh, that I am now deeply into this topic. We had a, a meeting here 
uh, at Wharton this week with uh, people who do data analytics for human resource, about 20 companies, and we had our data science faculty, uh, at least several of them, uh, from Penn in the engineering school, huddle up to talk for a day about what's going on. So so I am deeply into this um, topic now. But so are you able to discuss it without using the term big data? HR does not usually have big data. Okay. Now, that is a misnomer, right? And yeah. it is a challenge for HR because uh, a lot of these techniques of analytics require pretty big data sets. Mm -hmm. And, you know, most companies don't have enough employees. And even if they got... And, and if they have enough uh, recruits, you know, they often don't have enough data points, you know, on them over time to make this work. They got thousands maybe, sure. but big data is usually millions, so you, right? You, you just got away with it until you use the term big data right there. I was going to say, so you can discuss it without using the term <laughs> mm, big data. Mm -hmm. Trick you. Oh, boy, Dan. Is that work in court? Is that, <laughs> Actually, is that how you, you litigate? Yeah. <laughs> Do you yell gotcha in court? <laughs> no, you just laugh a little. <laughs> okay. All right, Dan S., back to you. So tell us, what did you guys find? So one of the things we know is the term is certainly popping up, and more people seem to be using it because it seems like there's interest on it on the employer's side. What are you seeing in terms of actual action? What are companies doing? Yeah, well, it's a trend that we see um, pretty pervasively around the world. And, and like most trends, it's starting in the industries where uh, talent is, is viewed by the C-suite as the fundamental competitive advantage. You know, mm -hmm. if, if I look back over the last 20 years, there's increasingly the belief across leading companies that, you know, people is how you win in your markets. And, and as a result, what we're finding is that the, the questions that CEOs and their executive teams are asking of HR are getting increasingly sophisticated. And historically, oh. those questions have been really hard to answer because okay. the systems that HR deploys, uh, they don't talk to each other. They don't always have clean data. That data right. is not always maintained and up to date. And it's hard to stitch together into a coherent story. Right. And what you're finding is that HR teams all over, all over the world are really getting serious about addressing the availability of data to solve and address some of these key questions. Um, and it, it's one of those things where the uh, the appetite to figure it out is much larger than where we currently are. There's only about uh, about 20% of companies in North America say that they have a uh, a software platform to deliver HR analytics in a way that answers key questions. Yeah. Uh, and yet over 70% of organizations say that it's a priority. So uh, I think okay. we're at that very early stage of yeah. market recognition that there's something okay. here, but we have a long way to go. Okay. Uh, so Dan asks, let, let me take a shot at explaining for people who are not deep into this stuff um, what is going on and why it matters. And you can jump in whenever you want and correct me. Okay. So uh, first, people often wonder, what are we talking about when we talk about analytics, right? What's the difference? Uh, and it has to do with the term algorithm. And here's basically it. So in the old days, if you were an employer and you were interested in hiring, you might say to your psychologist, uh, what do we know about which variables or which factors or which characteristics of employees predict who's going to be good? And they'd say, well, let's look at things we think we know um, matter. One of them might be, let's say, IQ. So they would look to see whether there's a relationship between IQ and job performance measured something like performance appraisal scores. And they'd give you an answer that says yes, and typically they're worried about whether the answer is statistically significant or not. And how big it is, often they didn't worry much about that. And one of the little secrets of this world is 
often a lot of the things that they were using because they thought they mattered didn't explain much of anything about actual variation in job performance. The data science people do something quite different and particularly people who use machine learning. And so what they would do is they would say, tell me a bunch of things you know about uh, candidates. If we're going to try to predict who hire, who, who is a good person to hire, tell me a bunch of things you know about them. And what I'm going to do is take the data on those people and their job performance, and I'm going to try to build a model that fits them together. And I might have seven or eight things that I'm interested in. Maybe it's IQ, maybe it's where they live, maybe it's uh, demographics, maybe it's their education, whatever. And they roll these into one ball, not eight separate hypotheses, but one. And they roll it together and they get a model that fits the data pretty well. That is, it fits the performance of these different people, who's high, who's low, explains that pretty well. That model is the algorithm. And after that, you can then go back to the employer and say, okay, here's your model. Uh, give me a candidate. We'll plug in the data for that person, and I'll tell you how well they fit that model, right? So the difference is when we're talking about analytics, we're usually talking about processes that generate these algorithms. So you're not getting a bunch of little stories about this works, that works from a psychologist. You're getting here's our bundle, and here's how it works overall. How am I doing so far, Dan? Yeah, I, I think that um, I think you're, you, the thing that you're, you're keying in on is that this new information allows us to have better predictions around who's going to be a great fit. Um, I think those kinds of things are what the most advanced companies are doing. Um, I would also say that for many companies, analytics starts with much simpler questions than you're describing. Um, even being able to answer things like, um, do how many people at my own company have machine learning as a skill? Most companies struggle to answer those questions. Mm -hmm. And so for most organizations, it starts with the simple things like, what does my employee base look like? Um, how does retention vary across the key constituencies uh, or the key skills that I have? Are my employees happy? Um, when they're happy, do they perform better? Um, so it, it typically starts with an internal view, and then, and then many companies start to enhance that with an external view of how do I compare to other benchmark companies? Um, does my organization look similar to theirs? Mm -hmm. And for the first time, some of this data is becoming available to organizations through things like LinkedIn and, and elsewhere. Um, and then the most sophisticated companies are figuring out how to use all of this data to be more predictive, to go beyond asking what is, to predict how to improve their processes through information. And, and, and the biggest problem that they're, they're tending to focus on is evaluating candidates. You know, the Internet has moved us to a world where um, – any given job could have thousands of potential applicants, and the process of figuring out which 10 to really spend time with to make a hire can be incredibly time-consuming. And when you, when you enhance it with some of this information, you can massively improve efficiency in the process, and, and you're mm -hmm. much more likely to hire both an, um, make an unbiased selection and also hire um, you know, the, the right person. Mm -hmm. uh, now, some of this, Dan asked, though, uh, has been going on forever, right? So in the 1940s, I think, or early 50s, there used to be something called the Mayflower Group. Dan, did you ever hear of that? No. The Mayflower Group was a group of big companies that used to swap data back and forth on their employee attitude surveys. 
Uh, so they were benchmarking with each other on turnover, absenteeism, and all that kind of stuff, wow. right? So a lot of this has been around for a long time. And the interesting thing I find about this, and here's a question for Dan O'Mara, because Dan Shapiro, I think Dan O'Mara is older than you are. Um, uh, and this is a history question. Uh, so if you went back like to the 1950s through the 70s, on college recruiting, if a company uh, wanted to identify you as a candidate and wanted to take you seriously, they would fly you out to headquarters, and they would do long interviews with yes. you. I mean, they would give you personality tests, IQ tests, interviews with psychiatrists, in-basket tests, all that sort mm -hmm. of stuff. And then it all died. Why do you think it died? And this is not a trick question because I'm not sure I know the answer. I think is uh, the expected tenure of a new hire dropped. Companies were less picky about their new hires, okay, were they... less willing to invest in training them, and what less willing to invest in picking the right people. Okay, so it just didn't pay off to make that kind of investment anymore. Correct. Yeah. And I think one of the things that happened as well is their ability to tell what they're doing. Is it working or not? Mm -hmm. Goes out the door, right? So um, this is I back. Offer, uh, Go ahead, Dan. I would say I think there's another angle which I think is interesting, which is roles are becoming much more specialized. And so, when you talk to recruiters about one of the biggest challenges they have, gone are the days of fairly generic roles that are then applied broadly across the business. You know, uh, role requirements are getting incredibly specific. And really? part of that's being driven by the availability of data. Hiring managers think that they can be specific mm. when they make a request. And so you, if you go back to your early comments around how do you build a model? Uh, uh, while, while Dan, you were getting your signal back, l let me say that both Dan, Omer, and I are a little surprised by that because We've been hearing for years about broadening job um, descriptions, broadening requirements, more fluid movement of people back and forth into teams, into projects, that sort of stuff. So when you say the jobs are getting more specific, what, what do you mean by that? I think both of those things are true. So on one hand, I think uh, people come into companies in a role that is much more narrowly defined okay. than it used to be. Yeah. If, yeah. If, you, if you talk yeah. to the hiring manager about what they want, they want someone who's tailor-made to the role that that person's coming into, the project that they're coming into, right. and their expectations of the training required have gone way down. That's they right. want that person ready on day one. Right. I yeah. think that's right. And then 18 right. months later, yeah. that person's finding a new role at the company. Yeah, that so sounds right. So, happening. yeah, they're not going to train you, so they want you to have, you know, it to be exactly perfectly able to step into that role. But Dan uh, Shapiro... I was going to say, so So, in other words, in baseball terminology, they're not hiring the best athlete. They want a third baseman who hits left-handed. Yeah, right. And uh, Dan Shapiro, though, isn't it getting pretty hard to do that, to be that picky anymore, given the labor market is tight? Uh, I think it's a supply and uh, demand problem. So the business is demanding specificity. Yeah, but can they find it? is trying to fight with the best things that they have based on what's okay. available. So it's, okay. they're getting squeezed from both sides. Okay. Uh, folks, we're talking with Dan Shapiro, who's the Vice President of Talent Solutions, Careers, and Learning at LinkedIn about their new research on analytics in human resources. So, uh, Dan Shapiro, what are you seeing as the most common things that companies are doing? So they're trying to, you know, they're talking more about it. This is a skill that's important. What are they actually doing that's different than maybe it was a few years ago? Yeah, I would put it in three categories. I think the first is taking a look at their own employee base and understanding the makeup of the skills that they have. 
Okay. Um, in many organizations, that data is hard to come by. Yeah. And if if you ask a question of a CEO, do you feel like you're prepared with the skills you have today to execute the business strategy that you've agreed to? They don't have clear answers to those yeah. questions. So, so I can I just uh, stop you on that one? Uh, both Dan's. Yeah. Uh, here's a question. So we were talking about this with a group of companies um, this week. And one of the things I found surprising is they said it was hard to get employees to fill out those forms that would say, you know, just ask questions like, what are you good at? You know, what sort of programming languages you do, et cetera, et cetera. And they were saying it was hard to get people to fill those out. Are you, are you both, I was surprised by that. Are you guys surprised by that? For an existing employee here? Yeah. Yeah. I'm surprised. Yeah, I'm surprised yeah. as well. It, 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 I've talked to companies all over the world. They share the same the same conclusion from their own efforts, and oftentimes the question of what's in it for the employee to go through that effort is unclear. Mm. Um, one of the things that LinkedIn has been able to provide is a platform where it's in people's best interests to publicly showcase what they're capable of mm-hmm. um, from a reputation okay. perspective, from a career perspective, and yeah. so for many companies think of us as that platform. Okay, that's uh, that, that's interesting. I, I must say I'm puzzled that. Uh, companies can't require this. Um, you know, just fill out the form. They require them to fill out all kinds of stuff. I think they can, but maybe they're they're reluctant to be too pushy. Why, though, if it's important to them? Uh, the, the little millennial will say, oh, I'm going to work somewhere else where I don't oh, have to you fill think, out really? that form. You think they're afraid of No, there, there's mm-hmm. nothing that's undermined an employer's authority to give out uh, work orders to yeah, employees, right. including fill out this form. Yeah, interesting. So, uh, Dan Shapiro, what's the most uh, sophisticated stuff you're seeing? You don't have to name names, but if you want to dish name names <laughs> what are you seeing what are you seeing that's sophisticated out there yeah i think i think um there's a wide range of things uh in some companies uh decisions about where to open office locations based on needing newfound skills okay. or something that is yeah. now getting an incredible amount of rigor okay um opening up new talent pools when you're trying to stir up solve diversity problems how do i think about hmm. if you want to hire engineers or um, that have a, a greater gender balance, you may need to look out industries outside of the ones you typically recruit from. Where are those people? How okay. do I how do I tap into that that audience? Okay. Um, and then all the way down to uh, the things we talked earlier about candidate selection. There's a ton of research uh, that's going into how do we use the signals about a candidate to know who to spend time with, to know who's really capable of the job. And I'd say the most sophisticated efforts are not just in assessing capability, but assessing potential. Um, how do we start to understand not just what someone knows, but what they might be able to contribute in the future? Right. And you seen anybody who doing, doing anything which looks good in that? I see a lot of places, particularly vendors, talking about it, but have you seen anything you think is credible? Yeah, the, the holy grail here is a model where you can look across the entire population of, of companies and really understand how to make an amazing fit between a candidate and a company. Yeah. And, and no one's hit that holy grail. Most of the companies are adopting purpose-fit models to their organization. You know, they're, they're able to look at their own employees yeah. um, and assess what are the things that factor in. And there's a bunch of organizations that are really investing heavily in that. Unilever is a good example. Um, Google's put a bunch of time into this. Um, but, but the idea of a generic model that can start to match people with their best-fit role is something that, that lots of companies, including LinkedIn, are spending mm-hmm. a lot of time on. Uh, and Dan can tell you why that is important to be able to do it only in, in your own company. Say again? Uh, Dan can tell us why it's important to have these prediction models that fit your own company as opposed to gener- using generic ones. 
if you get sued. Can I help you here with my junior lawyer, Mary? Yeah, Edge? sure. Go ahead. So if uh, you get a charge that you have adverse impact, mm-hmm. right? The defense is that your techniques for hiring predict who's good. Yeah, in exactly your workplace. Right. Right? Exactly. So right. I did. I get a brownie. I get a brownie. Yes, point you for do. That. You get you get two merit badges, yeah. and you taught me to pay more attention. There you go. Uh, there's a, there's a small lesson there, uh, Dan. When you look in the future, Dan Shapiro, what do you see happening next? So, there's. I think we agree. And by the way, I'm hearing much the same thing from employers that they're interested in this, but they're not good at it yet. And yep. Um, the big problem, which surprises people, so here's the thing that might surprise a lot of people, right? So we're talking to companies about um, sophisticated machine learning technology, and a lot of these folks who are doing this stuff have PhDs and this kind of stuff, right? And we're asking them the question about, you know, how do you link data sets? And you know what virtually everybody said the tool was they use for this? What? Excel. Right, mm-hmm. so they're using these really sophisticated uh, software programs to manage big data, uh, but then when a push comes to shove, they got to use Excel to put these data sets together because they got no other way to do it, and they're so incompatible. Yeah. So, w- what do you think? Looking out just a little bit, Dan Shapiro, what do you think we're going to start to see here? Where's the next push coming from? I think we're going to see it in two big areas. The first is that HR teams have been relying on a view of their own data um, as the primary source of information to make big talent decisions. And I think for the first time, they're going to be able to start to tap into data sets that exist outside of the walls of their organization to understand how they're performing, how they're competing, and what the talent pool looks like around the world in a way that wasn't possible before. Uh, And I think that's going to change Uh, the kinds of questions that they're able to answer. And it's going to ultimately mean that they're going to be pulled into executive conversations to guide the company strategy. Because almost every company strategy now is is a people-based strategy. Mm -hmm. It is we can outperform the competition based on who we have and how Mm -hmm. we operate as a group. Mm -hmm. Do you think... Go ahead. ahead. You got another one? Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say the second is is the, the natural phasing of any major analytics work where it starts as a small group of people in a centralized team with really advanced skills doing the work. And I think that's going to shift to a massive democratization of these insights. We're going to get to a place where every talent professional, every recruiter, and every company is using this kind of information on a daily basis to make choices. Mm -hmm. And it's really a question of of how we can make these tools simple, how we can make the insights straightforward, and how we can put them in context. But but we're going to be in a place where every every HR professional has has um, analytics as part of what they do. Yeah, I think uh, it's going to require some different skills or some big, big uh, improvements in the usability of the software, probably. But you know, yeah. that's where there's a lot of money going into this to make that happen. Well, so, yeah. I mean, our experience is that the problem is purely on the product side. That that you know, these products when built with usability in mind have right. um, I'll give you an example we, we have a product called LinkedIn recruiter which is used by hundreds of thousands of um, of recruiters all over the world they're used to it they've learned it very quickly um, we have an analytics product that that we uh, we launched last week and uh, we built the UX to mirror how they're used to using our recruiter product and so anyone that knows how to use recruiter can get insights from this product and mm-hmm. we found that there really wasn't the need to have a deep history in analytics as a discipline mm-hmm. Okay, good. That's good. 
Dan, thanks very much for being with us. Uh, we'll look forward to reading the report, and folks who want it, I'm sure, can find it on your website. And uh, we'll be checking back in and seeing how all this stuff plays out in just a minute. And I got a question for you, Dan sure. O'Mara. So, um, one of the things I find so interesting about this data analytics stuff is that it doesn't seem to neatly map onto employment law. So let me no, it doesn't. give you an example, right? So suppose I have built this machine learning model, mm -hmm. and uh, this is the algorithm we're going to use to hire. And in this algorithm, there's 10 variables. And um, uh, somebody suggests uh, to a plaintiff's attorney that mm -hmm. this uh, algorithm systematically discriminates against some protected group. Mm -hmm. And the company says, no, it doesn't. Um, but um, if you take that algorithm and you look at what's in it, the variables, s some of them start to see pretty suspect, right? Mm -hmm. Like it might be something like, where's your house, right? Yeah. Almost uh, random. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Or things that sound like they're correlated with your income, and that might be correlated with your race and stuff like that, right? Or what zip code you grew up in. What zip code you grew up in as yeah. well as where you live, right? So, and that stuff, and here's the thing about it, some of that stuff really might predict, right? But some of that stuff really might have adverse impact as well, yeah. right? Um, what do you think a court would do with that? You say, okay, we got this model. In there is a bunch of stuff, but some of that stuff looks pretty suspect, doesn't seem to fit the usual way they look at these things, right? Yeah, if uh, an employer has a utilizes a tool like that, and a plaintiff's lawyer takes the case and advances it and finds through expert witnesses, and it takes some investment by the plaintiff's lawyer, it's not yep. just uh, throw it against the wall, finds uh, through expert witnesses that it this tool does deselect various protected groups in a statistically significant way. As a practical and legal matter, the ball shifts to the employer's court to prove that this is job-related, understandably job-related. Mm -hmm. and, and for that reason, I would advise all employers to never go with what I'll call black box approach. Mm -hmm. You have some really impressive experts, some outside consultants says, I have a black box, here's, let me do it. And, well, what's inside it? How is it really going to be picking uh, people? Well, you're just going to have to trust me. Okay, yep. I'll trust you. Mm -hmm. That employer could be in trouble because mm -hmm. it's making employment decisions based on factors it doesn't even know. Yeah. And if the if, vendor says, oh, it works, that means nothing. Exactly. Um, <laughs> and now, on the other hand, if an employer says, okay, you got this quirky model, let me understand the various components and how each one relate, or even as a collective, how they relate to job performance. Mm -hmm. Much more defendable, even mm -hmm. if the, the the things are a little bit quirky. It takes me back to the days where I was on TV and other places about personality testing in the workplace oh, yes. or various integrity testing in the Coming workplace. Coming up next, by the way. Go ahead. Oh. Yep. And um, in that case, a lot of employers from these PhDs would buy these tests that would ask questions, uh, what's your favorite color? Um, yep. uh, are you afraid of deep water? Mm -hmm. Things like that. That well, I'm looking at them. I'm like, how could this correlate to job performance? Mm -hmm. And often it didn't. Uh, the employers are convinced it did, mm -hmm. and they got sued and had to pay out millions of dollars because they were trusting the outside experts. And uh, frankly, you know, a lot of these questions didn't make a lot of sense to mm -hmm. begin with. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, and I, I think the, the complicated part, if you're on the defense side of this, is that some of these algorithms, um, the only thing that uh, you can really say about how the variables go together is th that this is what fits the data. There's no particular argument as to why it should work. Yeah. There's no necessarily body of research behind why it should work. And how it fits together is completely idiosyncratic to the data. So which of these five variables is the most important? Well, we didn't know going in, but it looks like this, you know, this one fits yeah. the data. So I think, and it could be that, you know, some of the ones one by one don't predict very much, but only in the context of this kind of messy yeah. model does it uh, does it predict anything. Yeah, this is a, uh, we'll talk more about this maybe after the break, but this is a really... Um, interesting prob set of problems with data analytic. I think it's the most important stuff about it because in many ways what it does is not any different than what psychologists used to do in the workplace. They're trying to predict who's going to be a good performer. Yeah. They're using the same kind of data that they used before. The only difference is rather than testing it one by one, okay, I predict IQ predicts this much, personality predicts that much. The data scientists are rolling it up all into a ball, and they're getting one model, and they're telling you this model, these data in this combination unique to our algorithm predicts this much of the variation. That's yeah. what's different. Yeah. That's it. And by the way, anything that's predicated on a multiple regression analysis, do I have that term right, where you know this, mm -hmm. is, this accounts for 0.4 and this accounts mm -hmm. for 0.12, is to me suspect because if I recall my Wharton education, uh, multiple regression analysis are amenable to manipulation in a way that a straight line analysis might not be. If you have something that accounts for 42% of the correlation and you put another factor in there very similar to it, they might both deflate down to 6%. Uh, yeah, the, that's called collinearity for those of you who have your statistics books open at home. Uh, and they're not, I think, another way to put what Dan is saying. By the way, you get a half a merit badge for Thir that, Dan. 30 years later, I still remember very, pretty good, huh? Very good. I get a half a merit badge. Is that these models might not be particularly robust. And robust means if you play around with them, can you make the results change a lot? And the answer is typically yes. Um, the surprising thing about the way these uh, analyses used to be done, though, is that they didn't do multiple regression. They did one at a time. Okay. And the problem with doing that is they would say, okay, personality predicts this much, IQ predicts this much. But then what happens when you use them together? You don't sum the effect. So if personality predicts 20% and IQ predicts 30%, that doesn't mean you're going to get a 55% explanation by using both. You, you might only get 22%, you know. Uh, you might not gain much at all by combining them, mm -hmm. right? And so the, the problem is we really need to look at what you're actually doing, not what conceptually you could be doing. Machine learning is better in that regard because they're saying, here's the whole enchilada, use the whole thing, don't take it apart, and here's how much it's going to By the way, what do we mean by machine learning? So machine learning is a particular statistical technique, you might think, uh, and here's how it works. You take a data set, you split it up into three bits, and for the first bit, you say, let's see if we can find the relationship between whatever the variables are we care about, it, predicting, characteristic of the person, and then let's look at job performance over there, okay, on the other side of this. And what we're going to try to do is arrange, let's say, the intensity of the weights, the importance of the different independent variables in a way to try to perfectly, or come as close as we can, predict the ups and downs of performance across people. 
So we're trying to fit a model to the data. We're not testing hypotheses. Mm -hmm. We're just playing around with it to see if we can fit the data. The, the second third of the model, you're then going to use to kind of test it to see, okay, now let's look at another part of the data and see how well it actually performs. And then the third part you would actually use to predict, right? Okay. So you split them up that way. And so if you're actually doing this, you can see why you need pretty big data sets to do this because you're not using the same one great big data set for okay. everything, right? Uh, and the learning part is it's a little... Um, nonsensical, right? Because the machine isn't learning anything. Uh, it's software that's doing stuff, and the software isn't really learning anything. You're just playing around with it in order to try to get um, the best prediction that you can, the best fit. We're going to take a break right now. We're going to come back and talk about more of this in the context of a particular example to match people to jobs in just a minute. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 